Hey everybody, how's it going? Welcome back to the History of Video Games. My name is Wes and I'm here, as always, with the wonderful Ben. How you doing today, Ben? I'm doing pretty well. How are you, Wes? I'm doing pretty well myself. There are lots of good games coming out on the horizon. I uh, just learned Darkest Dungeon 2 is coming out in like a day. So oh man, I'm excited. Uh, but what have you been up to recently? Well, I have been playing Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic yeah. and oh, yeah. beating it. <laughs> and I think you might have been doing the same. Are yes. you, is that what you're talking about today as well? Well, we'll see. I got another game to talk about just in case uh, you mention all the points I want to. But I did. Okay. We were in a bit of a race. <laughs> I got stalled in my playthrough and then watching you, you know, steam through it reinvigorated me. So I did beat it this morning. <laughs> nice. Good, good. Well, I definitely want to know your thoughts because. So, like, uh, first thing I have to mention is the combat for this game's really good, but it's only good because, like, there's a strategic aspect of having three people on your team. Yeah. And yeah. you can kind of use them appropriately. <laughs> but when it's just a 1v1 fight, it's really unfair and, like, you can't really do anything. So, like, I definitely cheesed like the last boss fight and many parts along the way. Yeah. I was wondering if you had the same tactics or if there's actually a way you can beat it straight up. <laughs> so he basically, I mean, not that spoilers matter. This game is back in like 2003, but you know, he pulls the force from Jedi's in capsules to get his life back at multiple times throughout the fight. I figured out how to just uh, stop all the capsules so he couldn't go to him anymore. Mm -hmm. But I just had to pause after like every time and then every time he left combat so he could go recharge, I had to save the game because I was just going through all of my consumables. It wasn't going great, but I did just mash the same attack and consumables, barrier shields and stims. And I did win that way. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I didn't do exactly the same thing as you did. Like I didn't do the save, like saving in the fight. Basically, what I did is I realized if you disengage from combat and run away, you can get like a stim off before he can attack you again. Oh, okay. And so in this way, you can heal back up and then just fight him. And I had a saber throw as a power, and you can saber throw the capsules so he can't go to them, first of all. And then also, basically, I disengaged from combat. I ran away. And then sometimes he would get stuck on corners and I would just saber throw him for free <laughs> <laughs> and he would just be stuck there. And then um, I get some good damage off and he'd eventually try to come chase me and then we'd fight for like 30 seconds and I'd get destroyed and then I would run away and do it again. <laughs> yeah. But um, that was my strategy for a decent amount of the game. Tell me, there's another part I'm interested in, Wes. There's a part towards the end where a whole village turns on you as soon as you walk into a zone yes, yeah Did that happened to you and for that part for me immediately two of my heroes died and i just ran away with a third and they disengaged from him and i was able to essentially um aggro one enemy at a time with the last person on my team until i killed them all <laughs> yeah well that's something i was going to talk about when i talked about the game anyway because it's ridiculous that there's no good light side option for that quest like yeah. they basically have these two warring tribes of the same race and one of them like seems slightly better and then the other one is just like killing a bunch of people 
But no matter what, you have to decimate one of them. Like you have to kill the whole village, <laughs> which is a bit ridiculous. Like the light side option is, oh, I guess I side with these guys who are a little bit nicer. But I, for whatever reason, maybe I had good companions with me or like I just lucked out. All the guys who I was fighting were melee and I had Karth with me. So he was blasting people and I was, I found out that I had a force wave, which worked on a lot of them and I could just spam that and they could never get an attack off. <laughs> okay. I, I never picked up force wave. I mean, something else I was going to bring up as well is at least for me, especially towards the end, like uh, towards the end, there's a section where the enemies infinitely respawn. Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, I just felt like, if I didn't bring my Jedi companions, there was absolutely 0% chance I was going to get through it. Like the Jedi companions felt a lot better to me, but it sounds like you were using Karth. So what was your experience like with that? Well, that part was still very difficult. Karth was super helpful with the soldiers that had ranged because he was just taking them down from range. But anytime a Sith came and engaged him in close combat, he died like really fast. Yeah, I was just doing that because I wanted to switch things up. The Jedi definitely are very helpful, especially when you have multiple Jedi that all have the heal ability. There's like no need yeah. for medkits. But because I had done that for so much of the game, I had so many medkits stocked up that I was just using them all on that last mission. Uh, so, <laughs> Well, I found uh, like what was really helping me was that the friendly Jedi companions can sometimes incapacitate the enemies. Yes. And that is like a complete game changer and can just immediately turn the tide of a battle if one of those go off and without the non-jedi companions having a similar type ability i just felt like they were useless yeah it's a good point i got that ability myself so a lot of times right when a battle started i would incapacitate and stun like three or four enemies mm -hmm. so i usually just relied on that but definitely the jedi do become pretty much your best companions <laughs> <laughs> i felt like just the non-jedi companions needed a little bit more like special powers or something you know like i feel like a modern game would have like the smuggler like have like some special grenades or so, you know some power that pretty much is like a force power but you know it makes them viable and yeah they just don't give anybody like anything special like that <laughs> Yeah, I'm curious if they do in the second game, because, I mean, there's also the whole stealth mechanic in the game, which just doesn't really do anything. Like, yeah, <laughs> most of the game, I kind of just pick upgrades and don't pay attention to what they do. But I was actually reading Mission, some of her traits, and one of them is that, like, she gets a huge bonus to attack damage if she does it from a stealth position. But I could just never get that to happen. I was like, when is, <laughs> yeah. even with the invisibility belt that she had <laughs> so yeah they definitely could have used a little bit more there because the force abilities there's like a lot of them some are restricted to dark side but still it's pretty brutal if you're just bringing the ranged uh, blaster wielding teammates mm -hmm. and then the only thing i wanted to mention was i don't know if i mentioned this when i talked about the game before but i still feel like this game similar to some of the other games i've played recently the light versus dark side mechanic, I, I'm just not like that big of a fan of. It feels like very black and white. It's like, yeah, you know, kill your best friend or give some food to children. It's like, what do you want to do? I feel like they need to be more gray decisions and the light versus dark bar, I feel like should just be hidden or something. I don't know. I just, yeah, I found it hard to like do anything that would be dark. <laughs> I mean, it's the same way with mass effect in a way like renegade isn't as straight up evil as dark side 
which mm-hmm. part of that's just the Star Wars universe. Like, it's a bit silly, but the Sith are always just like pure evil, basically. The, thankfully, the more the universe gets explored, there's more nuance to the characters. But because there's actual in-game benefits to being like Max Light Side, Max Dark Side, or Mass Effect, Max Paragon, Max Renegade, there's like no reason to take the great decisions, even when they do pop up. So I agree. That is a little frustrating. And the ending was, I don't know. I played light side, of course, and it's just so cheesy. Like, I don't know what I was expecting. Yeah. But <laughs> I didn't mind the ending. I, I mean, yeah. I played light side as well, and I thought it was a nice ending. Overall, um, it's very good. Yeah. But some of the lines yeah. you deliver when you're like, I just want to get the light side points. I'm like, I wouldn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, I, overall, I thought it was a, a decently well-crafted story. I thought the only thing, again, I hate when games do this. Let me play the game after the story completes. There's no reason why I shouldn't be able to go back to Tantooine or whatever and finish up my swoop races yeah. after the universe has been saved. It's like, no, it just takes you main menu. Yeah, same Come thing on. happened to me where I got locked out of a couple, I think maybe two small companion side quests because there are some that are hard to trigger. They have to be triggered like before you go to the last world with a certain party member at a certain landing zone. So like Karth has a side quest about his son that I missed. Juhani has a side quest about a former slave master that I missed. So that bummed me out that you can't do anything after. But like you said, overall, it's still great game. Definitely, Mm -hmm. you know, you can, you can see the age in it a little bit, but it still holds up pretty well. And I mean, there's the Jedi survivor games, which are great action versions of playing a jedi but as far as like the semi-tactical rpg jedi kind of thing there's not really anything else i mean it does a great job of it yeah i'd say the closest thing it reminds me of is probably the star wars mmo actually right yeah it's a a very good game i really enjoyed my time i'm glad i beat it it was a little shorter than maybe i was expecting i think that middle couple planets i just kind of went through a little quicker than i was expecting but it was good. I enjoyed it the whole way through. Maybe got a little long at the end. Like, you know, yeah, the universe yeah. is about to get destroyed and it's like, help these two villagers out. And you're like, come on, dude, I don't have time for this. <laughs> but uh, it was a good time. So happy I went back and did it. Yeah. And now uh, on to the next one. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm curious about the second game after hearing that, like, it was released unfinished, but a lot of people still love it. So I may have to pick it up and see what the deal is. But thank you for playing the game and motivating me to finish it as well. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, I think what really did it was that Towers of Hanoi puzzle yes. that I showed you. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, I got to get there. That's uh, yeah. the peak of gameplay. And it's an optional segment, too, which is the worst. I forget what the loot even was. <laughs> oh, I didn't even know that. Yeah. <laughs> but... <laughs> Yeah, I just feel like the whole time we've been on the podcast has been preparing me for that puzzle. I made yeah. no mistakes, Wes. I went through it like a speedrunner. <laughs> Love it. Awesome. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm, I'm going to save my game that I played for later because okay. I think we, you know, talked about Coder for a long time. But I hear you got a special topic planned for me with a lot of fun statistics. And I'm excited to hear about that. Yeah, so I thought it'd be fun uh, now that we're at the end of 1980. I mean, we have one more episode after today for 1980, but I already know what games we're going to be playing for that one. So, you know, 80s kind of getting wrapped up and I thought it might be fun 
to look back about the games specifically that we reviewed or did extended honorable mentions on and just see, you know, what the most common uh, developers were or platforms were and just uh, see if you can guess what they were as well since we did play these <laughs> and talk about them. Doesn't mean I remember Sometimes them. a very long length. <laughs> Let's start out. Uh, I'm curious to know, Wes, what do you think is our most played home console for 1980 that we did reviews or extended mentions on? Most played home console, I would think, is probably the Mattel and Television. That is correct. Hey, okay. <laughs> It was really close, though. It's only one game more than the 2600. Okay. Well, and, and they're putting out so many games. And also, I believe this was the year when Activision started making third-party games for the 2600, right? So mm -hmm. definitely a lot we wanted to cover there. That makes sense. Yep. By my count, we had eight in television reviews this year and seven 2600s. So. Cool. And by the way, I did this a little quick. So, you know, <laughs> maybe the count <laughs> is slightly off, but I feel... Decently confident in it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I'd have to know, Wes, so our most played piece of hardware by far is arcade games, right. obviously. Yeah. How many arcade games do you think we uh, did reviews on this year? Okay. That's tough. I mean, I don't even know yeah. how many episodes we did for 1980. Uh, <laughs> but I feel like <laughs> on average, we have at least like two arcade games an episode. I'm going to say 35. Oh, man, you're off big time, Wes. Way low. Big time. Yeah. Way low. Yeah, oh, darn. <laughs> Lay it on me. How many? By my count, it's 63 arcade games that wow. we covered <laughs> in reviews this year, <laughs> um, which is pretty crazy, obviously. <laughs> yeah, that makes more sense than 35 now that you say it. <laughs> and for, you know, what publishers we've done, for these arcade games, there's actually a tie for first place. I'll give you a crack at maybe guessing one of them, but I'll give you Oof. a slight hint. It's not who you would expect. Well, that's, both of them. <laughs> that's confusing. Um, <laughs> you know what? I'll, I'll go for a weird pick then. I feel like Universal is one of them. That is correct. Hey, okay. Yep. All right. Well, since I'm on a roll, uh, Taito, maybe? Wow, you did it, Wes. Oh, my goodness. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> By my count again, there we did seven reviews for both Taito and Universal, outdoing Atari and Namco and yeah. Sega and Midway. So, pretty crazy, I think, for that. By my count, Atari and Namco, we did five, and Midway, we also did five. So, yeah, Universal. They had like Cosmic Alien, No Man's Land, Magical Spot, Cheeky Mouse, Devil Zone, Space Panic, and one in next week's episode that we haven't done yet. So, all right, lots of cool ones. And Taito had a lot, I think, more closer towards the beginning of the year, like Steel Worker and Lupin 3 and Warp 1, Polaris, Indian Battle, Space Cyclone, and Balloon Bomber. Lots of cool stuff. Yeah. All right. So, this is another kind of interesting question, I think, for you. I think. I could be remembering this wrong, but I think we played on a couple new pieces of hardware. Do you know what they were this year that we never did before? New hardware that we've never done before. Not computers or including computers? Yeah, including computers. 
Oh my god. I don't even know. Is this this isn't the first year we played on the Atari 8 bit, is it? No. Hmm. You've stumped me on this one, but I'm very curious. <laughs> it's the new computers, the Vic 20 and the okay. TRC Coco. We both did a review on them. That's right. For the first time ever in 1980. I thought it was cool. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. What about um, the big three computers, Wes? Which one of those did we play the most games on for 1980? Okay. My gut is because they're usually the best games, the Apple II. Yes, you're correct. Yeah. And it's the Apple II by a long shot. <laughs> it's like more than doubling the TRS-80, which is in second place. Yeah, a lot of ones on the Apple II, including graphical text adventures, which is pretty much purely right. on the, the Apple II, which I think makes a big part of that. So, yeah, that's kind of some of the highlights that I saw. Yeah. Uh, I don't know how many total reviews we did. Something It's got to be something like... 120 maybe something like that and i think pretty much half of those were just on the arcade <laughs> yeah yeah but it's for good reason makes sense for this time period absolutely those are where some of the best games are coming out that's crazy you know it's it's a packed year and it's a amazing the amount of like diversity of consoles and developers that we get to review because as we're going through this podcast we never know who's going to come out with great games you know it's not always mm -hmm. the one that we've heard of sometimes there's fantastic animation and magical spot by universal you know <laughs> so just part of the joy of this if you review 120 some games then you're going to get some great weird ones that no one's ever heard of definitely so why don't we take a break we'll listen to some music and then talk about some games nobody's ever heard of <laughs> Welcome back to the history of video games. Let's start out with some arcade games for December of 1980. We've got one here called Destroyer by Sidelsa, which I believe is an acronym for something in Spanish. I'm not sure. <laughs> They're a uh, Spanish company based out of Spain, I believe. And um, this is an original game out of Spain. Uh, didn't mean for that to rhyme, but... <laughs> and... I'd never really heard of it before, but it's pretty weird. And so I wanted to take a look at it. So Destroyer is a Space Invaders type game, but it's kind of like an enhanced Space Invaders type game. Like I say Space Invaders type game because unlike Galaxian, there's not really any like big swooping patterns from the enemies. They kind of come down like either in straight lines or like slightly diagonal. But it's kind of like enhanced Space Invaders because everything's running really quickly and you get to fire two shots at a time, which I really like. Nice. Uh, everything's in multicolored sprites and you've got a really gorgeous multicolored sky background, which is really awesome as well. The enemy designs are pretty unique. I would say they're kind of a combination of like bugs and robots. I don't know. That's kind of just what I 
get the feeling of with them, but they're very unique looking, and each enemy has a unique pattern for how it moves and how it shoots. My favorite, or I would say maybe least favorite enemy, is one that when they shoot a bullet, sometimes the bullet will change direction halfway down the screen and go <laughs> kind of in the opposite direction. And that has uh, killed me more times than I'd like to say. <laughs> but uh, it's a pretty unique mechanic. And even your ship, I think, looks pretty good. It looks like a Galaxian-style ship, you know, in terms of quality. It's just that the enemies don't move in big swooping patterns like in Galaxian. So when I say Space Invaders game, I don't mean that necessarily in a negative way. Um, but the real reason why I had to review this game is because of the boss fight. So you've got different waves of enemies, right? I think there's something maybe like five waves, and each wave is just one different type of enemy. And there's maybe eight of those enemies that spawn in. And um, each one has a slightly different pattern to it. But then there's a boss fight at the end of these waves, and the boss fight is just a crazy, like goblin severed head looking thing like oh, <laughs> floating <gosh>. in space <laughs> and uh it's really weird i would say it's up there with like the cursed monkey and crazy climber oh yeah yeah <laughs> it's just so awkward looking and it fights you kind of like i don't know like a like a severed head would i don't know it kind of like floats up in the top of the screen and then kind of like pounds down with the whole head towards the bottom of the screen that you have to dodge and uh, it doesn't shoot any bullets or anything. And also doesn't have any animation for when it's taking damage. So you're just shooting it. And I, for all I know, it could die after a certain amount of time rather than a certain amount of bullets. But you just have to uh, either deal enough damage or survive long enough for it to go away or explode or whatever. But it's a really weird boss fight. <laughs> and um, it's very uh, memorable, I'll say. So... I had to check the game out for no other reason than that. Um, but that's kind of all the game is. I don't think there's any other kind of unique mechanics in it. I mean, in one of the waves, your ship kind of floats up towards the center of the screen and then enemies can come in from the sides and behind you. But we've seen that before. So it's not really doing anything too new. And even the boss itself doesn't have any real like mechanics to it. It's just kind of, you know, plunges down at you and that's it. But um, I just think it's a pretty well-polished game for as far as the gameplay goes and the graphics. So with that being said, let me get into my reviews. So let's start out with the gameplay. I ended up giving it a 3.25 out of 10. I actually enjoyed it more than I thought I would. I guess just being used to Galaxian-style games, I didn't really see how this one was going to you know, be fun. But it really is. I think the, it's a combination of the very fast-paced nature of the enemies and the, the quick responsiveness of the controls the fact that you can fire two bullets at a time just feels a lot better than just one and um the enemies themselves since they all have different patterns and can be pretty difficult it's just a, a well-balanced kind of encounter the whole time and uh i don't know it was just good kind of shooting fun so i liked it a lot I ended up playing it longer than I thought I would. Yeah, so I wanted to get to the boss. I never got to him myself. But <laughs> it was too hard, but um, it was fun trying. I, and I enjoyed it quite a lot. So it just seems like to be like you don't need those big uh, sweeping patterns to be fun. You just need some good enemy variety in attacks and movements and uh, enough different waves. And I think it's fun. So yeah. yeah. And responsiveness, obviously, which this game definitely has. 
So moving on to graphics, I also gave that a 3.25 out of 10. I think they're very good. Totally multicolored sprites all across the board. The face, it's cursed, but it's very memorable and, <laughs> and probably actually pretty well detailed for the time, if I'm being honest. I think the enemies, they're very unique looking. I don't know. I, I really like them. Um, some of them have animations, some of them don't, but some of them even have like unique bullet shapes that fire down at They're you. Cool. And the explosion animation is kind of like a large group of different colored pixeled sprites that just kind of uh, flicker back and forth. And I think the explosion looks really nice. It kind of looks like the pixels of the ships that you destroyed like flew apart. That's like with some imagination, but <laughs> I think it's a pretty unique explosion animation that looks pretty good. So I think overall the game's graphics are quite nice. Now the thing I haven't talked about is the sound effects, and those are horrible. Oh no. <laughs> and, uh, I'll be honest, like the MAME emulation it says the sound effects are incomplete. So I'll try not to be too like negative about it. But we will play definitely a sound clip of this, and I will give you a warning before we do so, because it's that bad. It's like, I don't know, like atonal beeping noises. And like in the boss fight, they seem to be tied towards his uh, vertical position on the screen. So when he's high up, you get this tone that's a really high-pitched beep like going on the whole time. And then when he comes down at you, the tone of the pitch changes. And I could see, like, maybe they're like, oh, let's experiment with that. Maybe it'll be cool. But it's not cool. It sounds horrible. <laughs> and <laughs> you, like, want to just remove the headphones from your ears because it's so bad. So I really couldn't go higher than a 0.25 on this. I almost gave wow. it a zero. But it luckily didn't uh, cause me to not enjoy the game. Like, I still found myself enjoying the game even with, the sound effects being as bad as they were so i didn't give it a zero but i was tempted to like i don't really think there's anything good about the sound effects there's no sound effect noise for you firing your gun which seems strange no sound effect for explosions there is a sound effect for the enemies firing their guns and for a couple you know like when an enemy spawns in and stuff but it's just very hit and miss with no music and yeah i just it's not good, so <laughs> I'm pretty low on that. We'll play uh, some of those sound effects for you guys now. So if you're on headphones, definitely, like, I won't play the sound effects loud for you, but just, like, be ready, okay? <laughs> It'll sound like a fire alarm is going off or something. For relevance, I gave it a 5 out of 10. I mean, there's no like arcade cabinets that seem to exist right now, at least online. So I'm tempted to give it lower, but I wanted to give it some points for being one of the first like big arcade games to come out of Spain. I'm not sure that this really sold outside of Spain, but uh, considering it's a unique original game coming from a developer I'm not familiar with, I'm not sure how big they will get, but... It just felt like it should be relevant as part of Spanish video gaming history. So I wanted to give it a little bit of points and enough to offset how um, unheard of this game is. 
and overall I gave it a 3 out of 10. I didn't let the sound score impact the overall score super much, but um, yeah, the gameplay is really nice. It's really fast and responsive and, and fun, and the graphics are really good as well and very memorable. The sound is, is horrible, but uh, you can get past it. I think the sound is worst on the boss stage and i didn't get to that stage so maybe i would have given it a zero if i had gotten there but overall yeah i gave it a three out of ten overall so nice yeah yeah have you seen uh any pictures of this west i mean the face is pretty i looked it up yeah it's good no it reminds me a lot of there's a giant golden floating head enemy uh that you fight in spelunky and okay you know it's just like one of those sort of enemies that's a big square that just looks like the move over to the side smash down kind of fighting uh mm-hmm. and it reminds me a lot of that but it, it looks great i mean it's it's weird but it's like well detailed i love it yeah i feel like i remember and i want to say i fought a severed head in a um x-men video game like an old arcade port that was on the uh gamecube or something i don't know was it modok no it was um it was a sentinel head ah okay okay interesting but uh (laughs) yeah i should play that game again anyway there you go for another time (laughs) well cool that's nice that is a destroyer by sedelsa i mean we're still as long as you're doing cool and innovative stuff we're still liking these Galaxian Space Invaders games, uh, especially when they're from Spain, you know, someplace that we don't usually see making these games. Yeah. I mean, I, as long as like you put in some multicolored sprites, like how bad can it really be? You, know? <laughs> you say <laughs> we'll that. Find out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, next up, we have a game called N Sub by Sega, and it's a submarine game that basically plays like Space Invaders. It did have some nice gradients to it, uh, but not too much else going on other than that. All right, let's move on to some computer games for today. Well, we're going to start off with Creative Computing for December of 1980. Uh, they had a couple games in this one, including Apple Nuclear Power Plant, which let you run a power plant um, and hopefully you know, not melt the whole place down. Um, <laughs> but it was all text-based, so probably was more of... Um, uh, number simulator than a game <laughs> right and then we have superman by bill dyke and this just was a simple superman game but the second movie did come out in 1980 so i'm sure there was maybe we'll see a few more of these a resurgence of the superman type games <laughs> we should watch that Wes, since we watched the first one yeah yeah definitely um all right but let's move on to another magazine we've got personal computing for december of 1980 I want to mention real quick, Personal Computing announced in this issue that they were sold to Hayden Publishing, which is a company I'm familiar with. They publish quite a few computer games, usually board games and uh, just kind of generic basic games. Interesting that they decided to buy up this uh, pretty successful magazine at the time. And the one game that we wanted to mention in this issue was Goblin by Robert Nicholson which was a text adventure CRPG hybrid kind of game. Uh, It's all text based and the objective is basically just gather as much treasure as possible kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And then we've got Dr. Dobbs journal volume five. This includes the whole year for issues. So I like to do that because uh, we don't have to break it up into month mentions, but 
really there wasn't a whole lot of games in this journal for the entire year. It's a pretty popular, like pretty much magazine, but um, it mostly stays away from games. There was one game of note, it's called Las Vegas Super Slot in the December issue, which was just a slot machine with good graphics, but it's really the only quote unquote game in this magazine for the whole year. All right, moving on to some more computer games. We have Avalanche by Atari and Dennis Coble. Uh, it's a nice version of the Atari arcade game on the Atari 8-bit. So, porting over some of their games there. I love to see that. Yeah. We also have a game called Labyrinth, which I almost did a review on it. I was thinking about it. It's actually pretty much a sequel to a game called Death Maze 5000, which I mentioned previously. It's kind of an interesting blend of a maze game and a text adventure. It's set in first person with that wireframe kind of hallway look mm -hmm. um, that we've yeah. seen like on the Play-Doh systems and stuff. Um, but this one had a, was probably a little bit more in the text adventure style rather than combat and had maybe a little bit less going on than Death Maze 5000, but it was a little bit more approachable. So had some pluses and minuses, but wasn't anything I decided I really wanted to get into. <laughs> <laughs> Understandable. But a text adventure that we absolutely did have to review, the namesake for this episode, Zork, is what I took a look at next. It's my only review for the day, and it is a big one. You know, I'd heard of this game before, and I forgot how big it is, but it feels like it's kind of remembered in history as the quintessential text adventure. It's very well loved, and we're covering it now because the 1980 edition was the first published release of it onto microcomputers. Uh, this version was by Personal Software. Later, it'll be self-published by the developers in 1981. And originally, it was being developed all the way back in 1977, and it actually released on mainframe computers in MIT in November of 1977. But we didn't want to cover it then because it releases in 1980 and 1981 as three different parts. And between 1977 and now, it was being continually developed and changed. So the 1977 version isn't really like truly accurate to what it is when it released on microcomputers anyway. But the reason the developers started creating this game, oh, and the, I should say the developers were four students at MIT, Tim Anderson, Mark Blank, Bruce Daniels, and Dave Lebling. But the reason they wanted to make this game is that they played Colossal Cave Adventure when it came out, beat it pretty fast, and said, that was great. We can do better than that. <laughs> and particularly, one of the things that they didn't like about the game was the simplicity of the two-word text parser, which is something okay. that we complain about a lot as well. So I was very excited going into this to see like, okay, well, did they do a better job of it? Uh, and apparently they did. They figured out a better parser for it and they kept updating the parser from 1977 through to 1980. They kept adding puzzles to it and developing it more. And when it was released in 1980 and some of the other parts in 1981, because they had to shrink it down from the size of storage that you could do on a micro or a like a PDP microcomputer to a home computer, they had to split it up into three parts. So Zork 1, The Great Underground Empire, is what we're going to be reviewing today because that's what released in December of 1980. 
the name Zork itself uh, actually has a funny story to it. When they were developing the game, they didn't have a name for it, but apparently at MIT, the terminology they used for an unfinished program was just calling it a Zork. So they named a bunch of their files Zork, and then people from other universities who could access MIT's servers through the ARPANET found the game while it was still in development and saw that it was called Zork and just started playing it. So eventually that just became the official name for it. <laughs> and after a professor at MIT fell in love with the game, he convinced the developers to form their own company to sell the game. And that's when they created Infocom in 1980. And originally they licensed it to personal software, but then in 1981, they're going to get that license back and start publishing it themselves. According to a video I was watching on this, it is allegedly the top selling game software of 1981 through 1984, three years that it kept that record. And it had a total sale value of $20 million. I think that's okay. by like 2000 or something, like the year 2000, but still like that's, it's going to be a big game. It's not yeah. huge in 1981, but it gets massively popular in 82 and 83. Uh, and part of the reason is that they developed it for basically all of the popular home computers of the time. The way they did this is that they, instead of what a lot of people would do is where you have to code a different version of the game so it can run on all these different computers, they wrote the code, just had that sit by itself, and then made a interpreter that they could run on all the different types of computers so that that same code could be used on all those computers just with a different interpreter uh, which they packaged when they sold it so it gave them flexibility to sell it to anyone with an apple II, with a trs-80 with an atari 8-bit whatever it was uh, so i think that really helped it get spread out all over and have I don't know if it would be one of the first text adventures that a lot of people played, but definitely one of the most available ones, which I think definitely lent some of its popularity. In 2007, <laughs> there's an interesting thing where the Library of Congress said that Zork is one of the 10 most important games in history. So, you know, okay. I, I really underestimated this because when you <laughs> think about it, it is a very popular text adventure and that is a very like formative genre for a lot of other stuff. The language it was written in is interesting too. It's called MDL or Muddle language. And they picked that language out because they believed it was able to handle more complex text inputs better than Fortran, which was used for Colossal Cave Adventure. Another neat thing is that they apparently consciously made the choice to take out gendered pronouns whenever possible in the game so that all players could identify with the character. Very forward thinking for 1980. And yeah, that's, I mean, there's a lot of history to it, but let me get into the gameplay because I mean, it is a text adventure, uh, how different it could be with no graphics with no graphics. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> let me talk about how it actually played and some of the nice changes that they did make. It is the like quintessential text adventure, I think because it's more popular, maybe even more so than colossal cave adventure, even though that kind of started the genre up. So it basically plays like how you would think. But one of the main improvements, like I mentioned, is that there is a better text parser. They made it work so that it's similar to interactive fiction games that we've played, where it picks up on keywords within a sentence. So you can type in fairly normal English. And as long as it contains like turn lantern on or something like that, 
then it'll figure it out. So that was really nice. I was surprised how big of a difference that makes in making a text adventure feel more fun because you're actually, there's one less barrier to you interacting with this world. You know, you don't have to remember all these very specific commands. For the most part, you can just say, do this and nine times out of 10, it works, which is great. But unfortunately, despite that fantastic improvement, it is still a collect the treasure type game. Uh, no, <laughs> I was really hoping it would have more RPG vibes to it, but no, it is just a simple text adventure. The one thing that it does do that's nice to kind of switch that up is that it's very non-linear. For example, when you go into the White House, which is apparently very popular, it's like an iconic White House because it's described so many times in the game. But you go into the White House where you return all your treasures and you go into a trap door, which basically is the start of your exploration of the underground empire. The trap door is locked behind you, so you have to find a different way back to the house. Uh, so it's nice because it kind of switches things up and it's not just simple backtracking. So it does keep things interesting there. There also is an inventory limit in the game. Another one of my pet peeves for these text adventure games. Uh, so when I was watching somebody do kind of like a speed run of this game, every time they pick something up, they're like, and hey, we need this for this room. Okay, drop it. You're never going to need it again. I was like, oh, God. <laughs> it's one of my least favorite things. And then also there's this interesting thing I wanted to mention. It wasn't in the version I played, I don't think, but in later versions of the game when Zork 2 was also released, after finding all 19 of the treasures in the game, your character's given a map that leads you to a point in the world that when you interact with it, brings you to Zork 2, which is cool. I like that. I don't know how connected the quote-unquote stories are for these text adventures because it is a pretty loose story. But I love that they at least tried to connect these two games together. Is Zork like a, I mean, with a name like that, it sounds like it would be sci-fi, but is it, I'm imagining it's probably fantasy. It is fantasy, yes. And, and thank you for bringing that up because I forgot to mention it. But yeah, it, it is fantasy. I believe the first game you're exploring this giant underground empire that's made by, I believe his name is Lord Dimwit Flathead the Excessive. It's something and, ridiculous. Yeah. And he's a, is he a human? I don't, or like a mole man? I don't really know. He might okay. be a dwarf. I mean, it's one of those things where like you go under the trap door in a house and then all of a sudden you're in a giant underground river basin and then you're in an Egyptian tomb. So it's got a bit yeah. of that like Craig Hassett feel where <laughs> there may be some overall context that I'm missing for this. But even as I was reading about the history of it, they did say since it was being continually developed, anytime one of them had a good idea for a puzzle or something, they would throw it in. And it wasn't always the same developer who threw that idea in there. So some parts of it are a little bit hodgepodge for sure. But in general, it's got fantasy vibes. You have an elven sword at the beginning that glows when you're near enemies and that kind of stuff. But with all that being said, let me move on to my ratings now for graphics. I gave it a one out of 10. There are no graphics, but as you know, sometimes we do get a little lenient when there's nice descriptions. And as pointed out by the Blue Ranga blog, this does have pretty dang good descriptions compared to a lot of text adventures of the time. It's more telling a story and not just describing a room. One example that I saw is that at one point you see a pile of leaves and you can choose to jump in the leaves if you want and your character says we 
And then you can also choose to count all the leaves if you want, and they actually give you a number. So there's lots of like fun interactions that kind of help paint the picture of this world. Uh, so, you know, I'll fudge the numbers a bit and give it one point for graphics. For sounds, though, I don't think there's any fudging the numbers for that. There are no sounds, even though there are descriptions of audio in some of the different areas. I'm not going to give it any points for that. So zero out of 10. <laughs> Moving on to gameplay now, though. Do all the changes that they make to the classic text adventure have much of an impact on gameplay? Kind of. I mean, I know this is a well-loved game and I feel bad for saying it, but it's still just kind of a somewhat boring text adventure. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) So the theming is great. The story is great. It's just the gameplay that is really the limit for me. So I gave it a 2.75 out of 10. As I mentioned, the text parser being better does make a huge difference it's just one less barrier to being able to interact with the world so i loved that but i am not a fan of inventory limit even though i know that is part of the puzzle solving aspect of these games zork does have some fun and interesting puzzles though to solve to get all the treasures in one case there's this interesting egg that you find at the beginning of the game and at the very end of the game there's a very specific interaction with a wandering thief NPC that opens the egg to reveal it's the last treasure you need or one of the last treasures you need. So there's fun stuff in there. It's a large world, so there's lots to explore. It did one of those things though where it's like not absolute directions, if that makes sense. It seems like they're relative to the current room that you're in. So I would go east and then I would be in a clearing or something. I'd be like, oh, I'm going to go back to the house and I'd go west. And it wouldn't take me back to the same spot where I just was. (laughs) I think it's one of those things where it's like, okay, you went east into this room, but the west exit is actually a different direction. That really threw me for a loop, unless I was totally missing something. Uh, So that was... Maybe it was a maze. It could have been, you know, because there is a forest on the overworld, which I think is a bit of a maze. And uh, I remember, amazingly, I think I played this game when I was a kid. And because my brother was very much getting into text adventures and computers and stuff like that. And I don't think I ever made it into the dungeon because I just got lost in the forest, which almost happened to me (laughs) this time as well. (laughs) But despite some of those foibles I have, I guess, with the gameplay, it's still just, I can't really overstate how the text parser being improved makes a text adventure so much more fun to play. And, you know, this has a great story, great descriptions, uh, not a, super in-depth story but like fun theming i mean uh, so i definitely wanted to give it some points there moving on to relevance i gave it a nine out of ten i mean if the library of congress thinks it's important i'm gonna say it's pretty important uh (laughs) (laughs) you know i think colossal cave adventure really established the style but zork improved on it through very popular selling 380,000 copies by 1986 and being distributed on several different microcomputers with their more intuitive text parser. I think I would recommend Zork for anyone who wants to see like what a classic text adventure of the day is like, because it's probably the easiest to get into and the most intuitive. So it's definitely a hugely relevant one. I mean, I knew the name in the back of my head before we even started this podcast. uh, So definitely worth checking out for that reason. And overall, that left me with a 2.5 out of 10. I mean, text adventures really just might not be my cup of tea, uh, but Zork is a great one. It definitely does improve on the text adventure formula. 
has great descriptions for the areas, fun puzzles, and a much improved text parser. Uh, and even though it doesn't look too different from other adventures on the surface, I can definitely see why the small tweaks that they made made it so popular and important. Even though in my heart, I wish that Eamon was the RPG, you know, of olden days that was really <laughs> popular, not Zork. But, you know, <laughs> Zork definitely deserves its uh, recognition. Nice. All right, good. I'm glad uh, you got to take a look at that one. I was looking up, I'm trying to find out um, like how much like RAM it says you need, because I imagine with so much text in it, with the room descriptions and it picking up on all the different words and stuff, that it's a very hefty program. And for the most part, I'm seeing that they sold it like on floppies and stuff. So I'm assuming that's yes. how it was able to run that all. <laughs> yeah, because I think even after they trimmed it down, to size into three different parts to get it on computers, they still weren't able to fit it. And initially in 1980, they said, yeah, it's going to be two part game and then it's going to be over. And then they just kept adding more stuff and it <laughs> became a three part game. <laughs> right. I do see, um, I see one like flyer, uh, about it being on Atari 8 bit and it says you need 48 kilobytes of Ram, which is pretty high for the oh, yeah. this wow. time period. <laughs> but, uh, all right, yeah, so that was a pretty cool one. Um, I guess I'll have to check out Zork 2 when it comes out uh, probably next year, I guess, right? Yeah, Zork yeah. 3. Um, <laughs> we'll just have to see, but yeah, all right. Well, big one down. Let's take a look at some more small games. We've got uh, one here called ABM by Muse Software, um, and this was programmed by Silas Warner, who um, just next year was, just uh, you know, get everybody hyped. It's going to come out with... Uh, Castle Wolfenstein. So oh yeah, is right around the corner. Um, but right now he's working on ABM, and it's a clone of Missile Command for the Apple II. It does look and play very good, but we've already played Missile Command, so just a mention. And then we have Missile Challenger by Microware Distributing. It's again a Missile Command clone, and also for the Apple II. Uh, but again, nothing too special there. And then the best Missile Command version I found for the Commodore PET was called Starburst. The author for this one is unknown, but it came out sometime in 1980. And then we have a Missile Command clone for the TRS-80 as well to round things out. And that's Missile Attack by Adventure International and Cornsoft Group, specifically developed by Philip Oliver. Yep, and then moving on to the Cursor magazine for December of 80, we've got a lot of magazines to had stuff in December, I guess. But for Cursor, they had one game in this issue of note called Ambush by Phil Bayman. It's basically a two-player version of the trapping game we've seen before, but it ran and looked pretty good on the Commodore Pet. And then we have the Soft Side magazine for December. Just one game we wanted to mention here. Kidnapped by Peter Kirsch, which was a fairly simple text adventure where, surprised, you've been kidnapped. And it was also called <laughs> Escape, and this was for the TRS-80. All right, let's move on to some handhelds now. We've got one here called A-Man, also known as Crazy Kong, which will be later after Donkey Kong comes out, obviously. <laughs> but um, it seems like it's a some sort of Pac-Man-type game that had some colored LCD sprites in it. Uh, I have seen a date of 1980, although I personally feel like that seems too early, but okay, I've seen the date for it, so I had to say it. Um, but this one came out by Commodore and Conic. And then we have Hayankyo Alien, a familiar title by Gakken, which is a handheld version of the arcade game. 
looked pretty cool and we have seen a few dates for it 1981 for this but we decided to throw in december here all right let's move on to some consoles now west to round it off for today oh yeah let's go back to the very first one west the fairchild channel f it's Ooh. still plugging away and coming out with some games <laughs> i can't believe it <laughs> one game that I came out with here i have seen dates for 81 so i decided to put it right at the end of 1980 because i've seen dates for 80 as well um it's called pro football and I was debating reviewing this just because it's the Fairchild, but it's so bad, like, compared to what we've seen. <laughs> yeah, Like, yeah. it plays a decent game of football, but, like, the graphics are, like, squares, and we're, mm-hmm. you know, we've played football on the Astrocade where they're actually, like, stick figures throwing the ball and stuff. So it's just not better than anything we've played before, so. Um, but, it, you know, it did play a decent version of football for the Fairchild, but... um. A decent version of football for the Fairchild is, is a pretty bad version. So. Yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> At least in uh, the end of 1980 here. Yeah. But it's still doing things. Like, I don't know why they're still doing things. They yeah, I'm, I'm surprised. Hey, maybe some people still had that console kicking around and they were itching for a football game. <laughs> yep. But now we've got some Atari 2600 games to talk about. The first one is Bridge, and it was by Activision. But it's just a couple different card games, so nothing we really wanted to review. Well, the next one is by Activision, and I did review it, Wes. Ooh. It's called Skiing, and it came out in December. And um, more specifically, it's by Bob Whitehead, um, who we have mentioned on the podcast before. He Mm. uh, programmed, among other things, the 2600 version of football back when he was working with Atari. I think he also did maybe dragster or i can't forget he did some other sports games for sure but um he's back here with skiing now under activision as one of the founders of activision and um this one's uh, it's kind of weird for me to to review because it's not good like it's not it's just skiing. (laughs) yeah but it's well remembered and there's some like kind of nuanced points that i didn't really realize until i started digging into it a little bit more like for example like we've played a lot of skiing games because they're very popular on computers, right? And because they're dodging games pretty much, and that's mm-hmm. a very popular genre on computers. And we've played a lot of them on computers that are just like better than this. But if you're looking at purely home consoles, the only other home console with a skiing, skiing game on it right now is on the Odyssey 2. And if you look up that version, it looks way worse than this. <laughs> like, uh, it came out, I think, in early 79 or something, maybe 78 even, but there hasn't been any skiing games on a console since then. And um, this one looks way better, plays way better. And even um, in early 81, a version of skiing for the Intellivision will come out. And I checked it up briefly, and it doesn't look that different from this. Like, I would say this is like a very good version of skiing for consoles at the time, like definitely the best anyone ever saw, but we've played really good ones on the Apple too. So it looks bad to us, but it's, you have to kind of keep the context of it in mind a a bit. I think it did do a couple things that I did like, for example, uh, there's a couple different game modes in the game, mainly based around two different themes. One is like a slalom where you're going through like these different, uh, you know, little checkpoints or flags. Um, but the other one is called downhill skiing or something where you're just trying to get to the bottom of the hill, quote unquote, in the short amount of time possible. 
And there's a couple interesting mechanics there that you can turn on and off as variations. For example, you can turn screen wrap on for the downhill variation. And like when you do the screen wrap, the camera follows the player character. So I think this is technically the first Atari 2600 game to have vertical and horizontal scrolling. Uh, mm -hmm. I did read that, so I'm not sure if that's true. I can't think of another game that did that, so I think, yeah, yeah. I think it is true. And so it has that, which is kind of cool. And then the other feature that I thought was kind of cool is that for both of the game modes, there's uh, one of the variations that is a kind of like a random... Uh, generated version of a track so it'll kind of put the flags and the trees and hazards randomly down the mountain so you can kind of continuously play this game forever and it'd be a little different every time so i'm like that's kind of cool interesting left the uh, odyssey 2 version did have that as well which i feel like i completely missed hmm. when we did that one but um i think the random variation is not something we see very often so the game definitely has a couple like interesting things happening, uh, although it's not a good game. <laughs> the other thing I want to mention is that for the downhill variations only, you can turn on or off this jumping mechanic. Like so, when you're looking at the game screen, you've got the two sets of flags that you're going through as like checkpoints, or I don't know what the scoring is for slalom, but you go you're going through them. You've got trees which are different colored, but all the same shape. And then you've got these like gray blobs on the screen. Otherwise, it's a completely white screen. And the gray blobs are supposed to be snow mounds. And on the slalom variations, you quote unquote jump over them automatically. And you can do that as well on the downhill version. Or you can turn on manually jumping as an added challenge. And you have to manually jump them with like a jump button or risk uh, kind of falling over. So. It's a skiing game that has like kind of a jumping mechanic as well, which I think maybe might be new. So it has like a lot of good ideas in it. It's just, I don't know, when you're looking at videos of it, it's just a pretty much a white screen with a couple flags, trees, and a character that's moving really slow through them. <laughs> <laughs> and I think the biggest problem, if I talk about the gameplay for a sec, like all you're doing is really just steering this character down the mountain. But I think the biggest problem is that the speed is tied to the direction that you're skiing. So if your character is faced like straight down in a straight line, you'll go the fastest. But whenever you need to turn and for like a slalom course, you're turning a lot, uh, your speed slows down, which is true to real life. But there's no way for me to control it. Like, I'm sure there's a way people in real life can turn without losing a vast amount of speed every time they turn, you know? <laughs> But in this game, as soon as you make any turn, the speed slows down to like a crawl and it's just not fun. It's just too slow. And I wish like I kept wanting to like hit the down button to like have my person accelerate and there's nothing like that. So I just felt like the lack of speed controls really made it play very robotically and just very slow and not fun. That was like my big complaint about the controls. Otherwise, even though you've got a bunch of game modes basically relating to the speed that your character goes and how far apart the flagpoles are and stuff, they kind of all feel the, pretty much the same. The only game mode I thought was truly kind of unique was the screen wrap one because when you can wrap around the screen, it gives you a couple extra 
paths that you wouldn't have normally because there's a screen dividing line in between them. So I like that. It made it made it feel a little bit more open and like you could be more creative finding a path down the mountain, especially if you're doing just the down the mountain version. But um, I don't know. It's just the gameplay is just too boring. I think for me. <laughs> the only other thing I want to say really quick is that Activision continued to do one of the things I really love about them is that you know, like when you bought this game, it came with a manual that was really well detailed and had a full page about who Bob Whitehead is, what his tips and tricks are. And they did this thing. Apparently did they did this with uh, Drag Race as well. But um, they did this thing where on the manual says, if you can get a time below 28.2 seconds on this variation, take a screenshot of it and send it to us. And we will send you back a patch that says like Activision ski team official member. And there's a, <laughs> oh, I found cool. a photo of the patch. It looks really nice. Like I kind of want this patch. <laughs> <laughs> so it was really cool. Like little, it's a good idea to try to get people to play for, play it longer and feel like they got their money's worth. I think So I feel like Activision's marketing and branding is just like way better than Atari's and, uh, I'm sure it's why they're going to grow to be as big as they are. So yeah, with all that being said, let me get into the ratings. So for skiing for gameplay, I just gave it a 1.75 out of 10. It's not that interesting. I mean, you're just pretty much dodging and weaving through these poles. And whenever you turn, the game slows down so much. It's hard to make a mistake almost like the game's all about trying to do things in the fastest time. You're the best way to do that is to cut the corners of the flagpoles as close to the flag as possible. So you're not doing any extra turning. But, um, you know, I'm just not interested in splitting hairs like that. Like, <laughs> it's just not fun for me to try to maximize like that. So I don't know. I, I didn't find it very fun despite all the unique features that it had. Um, for graphics, I just gave that a 2.25 out of 10. I mean, we're back to like one colored sprites, so that's not too good. The game does have the scrolling aspect and is very smooth, which I'll give it credit for. But it's pretty much just a completely white screen with a couple trees and occasional brown or uh, gray patches and some flags. And that's really it. It's, it's just not that interesting to look at. I don't really know what they could have done, but just didn't think it was very nice looking in general for sound. I gave that a 1.75 out of 10 is very basic, minimal sounds, really nothing <laughs> that we haven't heard a bajillion times on the Atari 2600, but we'll play those sounds for you guys here uh, in a moment so you can hear, but I just didn't think it was anything special. And for relevance, because of all the interesting like little innovations and tidbits I found out about this game, I ended up settling on a 7.5 out of 10. Compared to what was currently on the market, this is a way better game. The problem is that compared to computers, it's way worse. But maybe people playing this game aren't Apple II owners or you know, TRS-80 right. owners or whoever. So to them, it's really, really good. And... um 
I have to kind of put that in, in context. I think it did sell decently well, uh, at least for how small of a game it, it is. And um, with all the little innovations in there and firsts, I had to give it some points. So overall, I ended it with a score of a 2 out of 10. I think it's kind of boring, but I do respect them for all the little things that they did with the you know completely random maps and the screen wrap and the different variations and the badge promotions and all that stuff. It just kind of is a lot of uh, little extra things that help make a bad game into an okay game. And I think that's what they did. So <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. skiing for the 2600. Cool. Hey, you know, may not be the most exciting thing, but seeing Activision do a solid job of something is always exciting to me because I know they're, you know, we're, we're getting closer and closer to when they're going to be making some awesome games. Yeah. Well, then let's round things out for today with our last Atari 2600 game challenge, which was developed by Funivision and Zellers. And we didn't have an exact date for this one, so we decided to just put it here. But it is a kind of combo of like a maze game and a dodging game. You have to dodge in between these walls while there's these... I don't know, clouds, monsters, something floating back and forth across these lines. So it's it's kind of like a Frogger thing, but it was real weird. The graphics were eh, but it did have a nice song playing in the background the whole time. So honestly, not too bad. <laughs> yeah, for that one, it's kind of weird. The names that I found it under were either from Europe or from like Asia. I think this is a very much like an under the table type game that people found way later. You know, that's my guess. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and I think that's maybe why the exact date is a little hard to narrow down. But uh, I have seen dates for 80, so that's where it's going. So uh, with that being said, though, Wes, we have completed the second episode of December. We only have one episode left of 1980, Ooh. and it's going to be a big one with some really cool games. But for this week, I did Destroyer by Sedelsa an arcade game from a Spanish company that was actually pretty good minus the sound effects. <laughs> um, and then you did Zork, a huge one that, you know, was definitely going to be a highlight game for us throughout the whole year. So I'm super excited. We finally took a look at that because we've been slightly mentioning it in mentions ever since the first version came out in like 77. So yeah. <laughs> it's been a long time coming. And then I did skiing. Uh, for the 2600 it was the last 2600 review of the year and um was by activision and uh it wasn't good but it was like good for a skiing game so <laughs> i guess that's all you can really hope for yeah very cool well make sure to check out our website we are getting close to the end of 1980 and you're going to want to take a look at all the great stuff that we've covered in the past year also, make sure to follow us on Twitter, where we post announcements. And if you have any other questions, feel free to send us an email. And with that, we'll catch you next time. See you all next time.